Good morning. It's good to look out and see the few, the proud, those with nowhere to go on spring break. It's good. We're going to stay seated. Actually, oftentimes, as many of you know, we stand during this portion of the service as we read uh, the text of Scripture for the sermon. But the text is fairly long this morning, so I thought I'd just let you all stay seated. We're continuing in the Gospel of Luke. But we're reaching a center point of the whole book. Up until now, Luke has been careful to recount for us the events of Jesus' birth, Jesus' calling to ministry. He's been especially focused since chapter 4 on giving us story after story of Jesus' miracles. His many healings, his power to cast out demons, his astonishing power over nature, over the wind and the waves... And even his power over death, raising a little girl from the dead in our last chapter, chapter 8. And at this point, just about everybody who has seen or heard about Jesus has been fairly convinced that Jesus has probably some kind of special relationship to God. That God is somehow associated with him in some way. But still everybody is asking the question, who is he? And Luke has designed his gospel up up to this point to present us with the same question. Our passage invites us to read the newspaper headlines of Galilee, where everybody is talking and whispering from the palace halls of the great down to the water wells of the small, and they're discussing the question of Jesus' identity. Luke's gospel is asking us the same question, and through the apostle Peter, it also gives us the answer. This is the good news of Jesus who is the Christ of God. And it is the center of our confession of faith, a confession that we need, a confession that empowers, and a confession that brings comfort. And we find it in Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away, And the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside. 
to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For there were about five thousand men. And he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about fifty each. And they did so. And he had them sit, all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, twelve baskets of broken pieces. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and even others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. Our Father in heaven, we pray and ask that by the power of your Spirit, you would take this your word, the word that you wrote through the Spirit, and that you would illuminate our hearts this morning. Help us to understand not just what it means, but what it is calling forth from us. And then by your Spirit, enable us to walk in obedience to it. Call forth and then enable that which you call forth in us this morning, because you are gracious and kind. Show us once again Jesus. Let our hearts be set upon him. Let our love for him grow. Do these things for us, Father, we pray in his name and by the Spirit. Amen. Well, it doesn't really bear needing to be said too much that the sport of professional football has somewhat fallen on hard times in our culture, at least in the eyes of many. Abuse scandals in the news seems like a lot. Brain injuries that have been covered up by the organization, possibly. Other things that we could continue to list. I would imagine that there's probably even a lot of opinions represented in this room on what our response should be to continue to watch or patronize NFL football. And I'm going to tell you right now that I don't have any intention this morning of wading into those issues or giving you my opinions on them. But I do want to talk about the Green Bay Packers of 1961 and more specifically their head coach, Vince Lombardi. Lombardi typically considered one of the best NFL coaches of all time. By July of 1961, of course, the previous season was over. The Packers had just lost the Super Bowl to the Philadelphia Eagles, and they had lost it in the worst way. They had squandered a lead that they had been holding late in the fourth quarter. Many of you know some of the story that followed. When the next season's training camp arrived in July, Vince Lombardi stood in front of all of his players assembled in front of him, and he held up his hands and he said, Gentlemen, this is a football. And then he, goes, he went on to explain to a team that had just played in the Super Bowl, a team that had just proven itself to be clearly the second best in the nation. 
he went on to explain to them that they were going to approach the next season not with new trick plays, not with new approaches to strength training or cardio, not with a new redesigned playbook. They were going to simply be better at the basics than everybody else. Running, blocking, tackling, execution, the basics. And they went on to win five of the next seven Super Bowls. Not by seeking to transcend the basics, but by going through the basics. And this passage from Luke in front of us, it's a transition section in Luke's gospel. He is transitioning from the subject of Jesus' fame and works to a section on discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the hinge between those two sections in his book is the most basic element in the Christian life. Our confession. What it is we confess to be true of Jesus. What it is we believe about him. And how this impacts the rest of our lives. The section that we are looking at this morning is the first of many paragraphs where Luke helps us to see how our basic confession of Jesus is always the foundation for following Jesus as well. We never outgrow the basics. We never outlive the basics or get beyond the basics. Our confession of who Jesus is is at the center of the gospel. It's the door that we all walk through to enter the Christian life, but it's also the flooring and the furniture and the walls and the foundation and the superstructure around living the Christian life. And so even though we find the basic confession of Christianity coming out of Peter's mouth at the very end of our passage, that's where we're going to begin this morning. Jesus gets the conversation going in verse 18 by asking who the crowds think that Jesus is. The crowds that have witnessed up to this point so many miracles, the crowds who had just watched him feed thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. And some think it's John the Baptist returned from the dead, some Elijah, some maybe one of the other great prophets from the Old Testament. But at this point, Jesus He isn't interested in the fake news stories. He doesn't care about social media hype. He doesn't care about Herod's confusion and the halls of power and policy. He cares deeply and individually for the 12 in front of him. And so he says, what about you? What do you believe? And Peter's famous answer comes back, the Christ of God. Because you see, the crowds crowds weren't all wrong. They were at least looking in the right place, the Old Testament scriptures. And the things Jesus had just done pointed strongly to some of the most prominent Old Testament figures. A child had been raised from the dead at the end of Luke chapter 8 when we looked at that last week. Just like Elijah The prophet of prophets had been used by God to raise the widow's son at Zarephath in 1 Kings chapter 17. 
The people had been fed bread and meat by Jesus. As though, as through Moses in Exodus 16, as we heard from Tyler a moment ago. We could have gone to read about Elisha, the successor to Elijah, when he miraculously fed a hundred men with a small amount of bread in 2 Kings 4. The crowds were right, at least in part. Jesus had prophet written all over him. But Peter and the rest of the apostles knew more because God the Father, through the Spirit, had revealed more to them. Their understanding takes a significant leap at this point in declaring him to be the anointed royal son of David, the great Messiah figure promised by the Old Testament law and the prophets and the Psalms and the writings. He is the great deliverer and defender and provider of God's people. Centuries and millennia in the making. He is the Christ of God. The view of the crowds and even Herod was only partially correct. Like trying to tell what something really is by watching its shadow change and become kind of longer and then maybe shorter again in the sun, all the while trying to figure it out. And to a large extent, our contemporary world does the same with Jesus. Although usually much further from the mark than the Israelite crowds typically are. For our part, the view of the crowds finds analogy in so much of what our contemporary modern world wants to make of Jesus, even as they largely reject him. Because Jesus, Jesus can't be pigeonholed into simply being like the best of our contemporary heroes, such as John the Baptist was to the Galileans. John the Baptist was the contemporary hero of the Galileans. But Jesus can't just simply be reduced to the best of our contemporary heroes. He he isn't the personification of successful, prosperous, or moral cultures. Or the personification of any political movement or group identity movement. He isn't the personification of the oppressed or the victimized. He isn't the personification of the best of human wisdom and knowledge and the great ideas and the hopes that we have for progress. He can't simply be equated with even our highest ideas of love. Most especially because our ideas of love often come nowhere close to equaling what God says true love really is like. But by the same token, we don't get to create Jesus in the image of our favorite heroes from the past, like the prophets of the Old Testament, our favorite presidents, our favorite church history figures. Oh, man. A Horn is asking right here if we have a doctor present in the congregation. I think there's some sort of an emergency happening in the back. See Adrian, nurse. Okay. Thank you, Jay. Just pray for us right now. Father, you are aware of what's happening even right this moment, although many of us are not. Um, 
So we come to you as your people asking that you would take care of one of your own and one of us. Father, we pray that you would minister to this one who needs help, that you would get this person help as quickly as they need it. And Father, that you would bring healing and full restoration. Father, we pray that you would just give peace to those who might be very afraid right now. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you that your presence is here with us. We pray these things to you, our Father, our healer, in the name of Jesus, the physician. Amen. We don't get to think about Jesus simply as a great hero from the past. Because Jesus isn't the hero that we always thought that we needed. Jesus is the hero that we have needed more than air that we breathe, but he is the hero that we would never think that we need, and he is the hero that we certainly would never ask for. Considered simply as a good man, Jesus was a total failure because he led so many to believe that he was so much more than simply a good man. And here's what this means. This means that Jesus is only a person worthy of your respect if, if, and only if, he is also a person worthy of your worship and your abject, self-abasing devotion and blind trust. In other words, only if he is the Christ of God. And if you say no to this identity for him, then you must utterly reject him, for he has nothing else for you. You cannot love him in slices, You must take the whole Jesus as he is presented to you. You either receive heaven and earth from him or nothing. But you don't get anything from him on your own terms. You either let him serve you with his life and death and resurrection or nothing. For although he is the servant of servants, he has no master. We must confess that he is the Christ that we need, even when he isn't the Christ we might design for ourselves right now. And we must do so even as others reject him, either outright or more commonly by just trying to remake him in their own image. Many false Christs continue to go out into the world, as the Apostle John warns us in his letter. Preparing his disciples for a world that would reject him and would reject them as a result. That's precisely what's happening at the beginning of our passage this morning. As part of his instructions for sending them out into the towns of Galilee to preach and to heal, Jesus tells his disciples to shake the dust off their feet as a testimony against those who would reject them in verse 5. That seems kind of odd. But it's taken from a custom that was practiced by the Jews when they would 
go on a journey and they might have to walk through Gentile pagan territory and walking through that territory to get to where they needed to go. Once they crossed the barrier, once they crossed the line out of pagan territory back into Jewish territory, they would shake the dust off their feet. And now Jesus was saying that his disciples should do the same in Jewish towns if they rejected the message of Christ. Why? To make the point that those who might think or consider themselves insiders of the true faith are actually proven to be outsiders when they reject the true confession, when they reject the true Christ. But his commissioning and his sending out these disciples, it also communicates something else to us. Being a disciple, being a learner and follower of Jesus, doesn't mean doing our own thing. It means doing his things. Having his purpose, doing his works. Because he empowers us to do them. He he works his works in us and through us. In this first paragraph of our passage, we see that this is comprised of of three interconnected parts. Number one, proclaiming the message of what God has done through Christ the King to bring His kingdom. Secondly, tearing down the powers of darkness and the curse as we move into the world while also leaving something better behind. And then thirdly, not becoming distracted with worldly cares, depending on Christ for the meeting of our needs as we make His priorities our priorities. The message of the kingdom is the message that Jesus is the Christ of God, the King of all things, who suffered and died and rose again to forgive our sins. And it's this message that brings life to dead hearts. But while we proclaim this message, we also engage in works of mercy and community development. We seek to tear down the work of the devil and the ills of the curse wherever we go, demonstrating that the kingdom isn't just about words, but power that can break down demonic fortresses. But it's not just about demolition. It's also about construction. And so in the place of lies, we offer truth. In the place of domination and enslavement, we offer freedom to pursue the purposes for which God created us. In the place of disease, we offer healing and encouragement to grow and succeed. The point is, the kingdom work that we have has not essentially changed since Jesus commissioned these disciples. In fact, it must never essentially change or we're doing it wrong. We are still called to do the works of our Savior, whether or not it's going to appear sensational or miraculous to onlookers. And although all these things are true, they're easier to talk about than to practice, as the disciples themselves find out beginning in verse 10. They're just returning from a time of very successful ministry. They've been sent out and they're coming back with joy and stories of God using them in the towns that they had visited. They're excited and they're amazed and they're tired. They begin to withdraw to a quiet town for some rest. 
But the crowds hear of it and follow them. And what does Jesus do? He welcomes them. He welcomes the crowd. And then he does what he's been doing all along and what he had just commissioned the disciples to do. He speaks to them of the kingdom of God and he heals those who need healing. And as the evening approaches in verse 12, the apostles begin doing what every good Sunday morning pastor should do. They start remembering how late the hour is becoming. We've got to get everybody out of here. We've got to get everybody out to the restaurants. We've got to beat the Baptists to it. But Jesus, he's not checking his watch. Instead, he's, he's a lot more interested in a lesson on discipleship. The apostles, and by, and by the way, verse 10 is the first time the disciples are called apostles or sent out ones. The apostles consider sharing what they have. Doesn't take long to check that out. Not enough. And then they consider going and buying enough for everyone, which is quite a task, quite an expense. Probably seven to eight months worth of wages to buy enough food for this many people. But what idea never comes out of a disciple's mouth here? Asking Jesus to provide it. No one asks that. No one suggests that. Which seems maybe odd to us given everything that they've seen Jesus do in the last few days and what they had just seen him do through them in the towns they'd been to. But, you know, as weird as their lack of asking Jesus might seem to us, Jesus' command to them is just as weird. And frankly, when, it, when it's considered for what it really is, it's, it's frightening. Verse 13. You give them something to eat. You do it. This verse means something very, very significant for anyone who really takes discipleship seriously. Anyone who takes following Christ with their life seriously. Because do you have any idea what this verse means for you? It means that Jesus will regularly require impossible things from you. Do you actually believe that? Because listen, we don't, we don't get to take away the full force of what Jesus is asking here by saying, well, I mean, yeah, but Jesus is really testing them. Wrong and right. Jesus is testing them. But he's doing more than that too, isn't he? Ask yourself this, do the disciples end up feeding the crowds by the end of the story? Verses 14 through 16 say, yes, absolutely, they do. They feed the crowds by the end of the story. They don't get to sit on the couch and watch a miracle. They feed the crowds just as Jesus told them to. 
So we don't get to get out of this by simply saying it's just a test because that might be more comfortable for us because the reality is Jesus will regularly require impossible things of you. And when I say that, don't, don't let your mind quickly go to the sensational as though we all should be expecting Jesus to be asking us to perform miracles and signs and wonders if we're really committed disciples. That's silliness. And that kind of thinking says more about the sensational age that we live in than it does about the meaning of this passage. Instead, what this passage says is that Jesus will require impossible things of us as a normal rule of discipleship. And it can come in so many forms. Stepping into ministries, maybe, that we feel completely inadequate to minister in. Going through suffering that we believe will be the end of us. Leaving comfortable places in order to represent him in uncomfortable places. Risking our social comforts and our standing with others. Risking losing the standing that we have in the eyes of others in order to say what absolutely must be said or do what must be done. Sacrificially parting with our money or our possessions. Saying goodbye to loved ones that we know God is taking from us for his own purposes. Jesus will ask many and maybe even all of these things of you and more because you are his disciple. And because this passage teaches that it is his will, it is his delight, it is his preference to minister through his disciples. And so the question immediately becomes, how? How will I be able to do what Jesus will ask me to do? By going back to the basics. By going back to our confession. Jesus is the Christ of God. And this confession is the answer for us in the frightening requests that Jesus will make of us because this confession is also our supreme comfort, even though it is so costly to embrace. Because if Jesus is the Christ of God, then what else is also true? I'm not. I'm not, and you're not. I'm not the Christ. You're not the Christ, but he is. This confession, it's not just the stairway by which God descends to us and we ascend to God. It is also, this confession is also the cross on which our own desires to be Christ's, to be saviors, to be the hero of the story are crucified. Our savior complexes, our desires to be the center of attention, to be the sought-after figures bringing wisdom and justice and healing to the masses, die right here. Why? Because we realize that we aren't him and we're not supposed to be him. And when this is fully embraced, it brings such comfort. 
It brings such peace. It brings such boldness. And it brings such confidence to answer Jesus' many calls to plow impossible fields. But it's also costly. It's costly because it's a death to our pride. It deals a death blow to our constant efforts to polish our image in the mirror while also at the same time being a refreshing weight lifted off our shoulders. We are not the Christ, but He is. We can't feed innumerable people, but He can through us. We can't break the powers of darkness and heal the sick and educate the ignorant and free the captives, but He can through us. Deeply diving into these truths, feeding on them daily with our families at home in our private worship, drinking from them weekly together in worship as His gathered body, that is the fuel for discipleship. When we forget our confession, not just intellectually, but when it's not in our bones, in our hearts, when it's not in our meditations, when it's not inspiring our prayers, when it's not being actually factored into our daily decisions, we become powerless in the Christian life, just like the rest of the world. And we live by fear. And we live for the maximizing of pleasure and the minimization of pain just like everybody else. But Jesus is the Christ of God. Peter and the other apostles knew this much, but we know the rest of the story that they couldn't know yet. We know that this Christ isn't just the greatest human deliverer to ever live, but he is in fact God the Son himself. Something that would be made known to all the disciples clearly at his resurrection from the dead. As one scholar puts it, Jesus is not just another messenger. He is the message itself. He's not just a pattern for us to follow because we can't in our strength. But he lives to empower and to enable what he demands because he is God in the flesh. His miracle of feeding the 5,000, it hints at this. Jesus feeding the people doesn't just recall miracles of old manna in the wilderness, for instance. It points to another, a future, more satisfying meal. The language that Luke uses in verse 16 of Jesus taking the loaves and pronouncing a blessing over them and breaking them and distributing them points us to chapter 22 of this same gospel where Jesus is going to serve the Last Supper. With the miracle of the manna in the wilderness, there was only ever enough for one day. You heard that earlier. One day's worth of food. It burned up at the end. It turned to worms if you tried to keep it for the next day. Here, there's 12 baskets full left over. Signifying that Jesus is more than enough to satisfy his people. He's more than enough to satisfy his people, whether it's the Old Testament people of the 12 tribes of Israel or the New Testament church of the 12 apostles. He is enough to satisfy his people. Abundant leftovers. You can't get through it all. 
We come in direct relationship with Christ by joining Peter in his confession. He is the Christ of God. We go forward into the world in obedience to do impossible ministry by returning again and again to the one who's at the center of this confession, our confession. Jesus is the Christ of God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, believe it. And Father, we pray and ask that you would Enable us to believe now and even tomorrow and the rest of this week that as we go into impossible situations, most of which we will not design, but you have designed, (laughs) you will ask us to step into impossible situations. Things that are frightening, things that are difficult, things that are well above our capacity. We pray that when you do that, you will help us by your grace and your mercy to remember that Jesus is the Christ. And by recognizing that he's the Christ, that we would find all the peace and all the comfort that we need to go forward in obedience, although it is hard. To enter into suffering, although it is hard. To trust you to use us to help someone else, although it's hard. To trust him to defeat a sin that we've been wrestling with for years, although it's hard, regardless of the steps that will require. To enter into situations when we have to come out behind the curtain and be exposed and let others see things we wish they would not see for the sake of your kingdom, for the sake of our healing and the sake of others' healing, that we would trust that Christ is the Christ in those moments. Father, we need your spirit to do these things for us this week because we cannot do them for ourselves. And in all these things, draw us closer to your Son. We pray these things in His name and by the Spirit. Amen.